Hello again, podcast listeners. I am Dr. James Cole, and I once again am happy to share with you my latest chapter of Healthcare in America, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Today, I want to entertain the discussion of whether healthcare today needs more generalists or more specialists. Now, if you've listened to my past talks, you know that I have some pretty strong criticism of how a lot of my professional colleagues, that is my physician and surgeon friends, have slowly given away a lot of their once abundant knowledge, proficiencies, skills, and responsibilities in exchange for a more idealized life. I'm talking about the concept of work-life balance, where doctors can spend limited time working and have more free time to enjoy life and unburden themselves from having to care for patients. I understand why nearly an entire generation of doctors no longer wants to be enslaved to residency training programs where workdays have no defined end time and where where weekends bring no more time off than weekdays. I understand why so many today rebel against the old culture of when newly minted physicians literally gave entire years of their lives to learning the art and craft of medicine and surgery. Those were difficult times for those of us who trained prior to the changes imposed in 2003. But everyone who trained back then really knew his or her stuff following completion of the residency years. We had many more generalists and fewer specialists back then. And yesterday's generalists had the breadth and knowledge and skill often far superior to many of today's specialty physicians. For example, most family physicians used to deliver babies, yet it's hard to find anyone other than an obstetrician who will manage a pregnancy these days except in the most rural of areas. Internal medicine physicians used to manage everything from heart disease to kidney failure, but patients with these problems are now, are now often sent to cardiologists and nephrologists to manage these aspects of their health care. General surgeons of my generation performed surgery on the abdomen and on the chest, managed severe trauma, served as critical care specialists, and operated on babies as young as two weeks old, but fellowship-trained thoracic surgeons, trauma surgeons, intensivists, and pediatric surgeons have now taken over most of those latter responsibilities. The profession of medicine and surgery has been broken into so many niche specialties that it can be difficult to find newer doctors who are comfortable managing more than a very limited aspect of one's overall health care. Whereas the fact that America is generating more and more specialists may seem like a good thing, the collateral effect of this is that fewer and fewer doctors are now able, comfortable, or willing to manage the whole patient, or even most of a patient. This, in my opinion, is a travesty. Doctors should treat people, not parts of the body or specific systems of the body. Everyone who presents to a doctor's office is a human being, and whatever it is that ails them belongs to an entire body which is likely affected by one or more ailing or injured parts. Whereas I understand the need for specialists, and I applaud the advances made by specialists, and I am happy that we have so many talented specialists in America, many specialists have developed severe tunnel vision. That is, they somehow see and recognize only that which pertains to their specialty and fail to see the whole patient. As a specialist, I know that it's possible to evaluate and manage the whole patient through thick and thin, because that's what I do. It can be easy to slip into the specialist mode and only focus on one thing. But the success of any surgery depends on the overall health of the entire body, and so I pay attention to all of it. I discussed at length in a previous podcast how restricting residency work hours contributed to nearly three-quarters of soon-to-be residency graduates to feel inadequately prepared to work independently in their chosen specialty. 
When doctors don't feel adequately trained, they often pursue fellowship training to become subspecialists, often to intentionally limit what they need to know and be responsible for once they assume independent practice status. This in turn contributes to some specialists practicing in a vacuum, so to speak. That is, they manage a particular aspect of a patient's health, but they often overlook or even ignore the other aspects of their patient's health care, and this is a real problem. Thus, many physician specialists are often needed these days to provide a similar degree of comprehensive care once provided by just one well-trained, well-rounded, and completely dedicated generalist physician of the past. We as a society often value specialists more than generalists, and in fact, most specialists earn more than most generalists. But whether specialists or in fact generalists are a more valuable commodity remains a matter of debate and demands further discussion. I'll give you some examples of this practicing in a vacuum phenomenon, which I think is such a problem these days. A patient with chronic kidney failure who receives traditional dialysis three times per week was referred to a vascular surgeon who created the patient's vascular dialysis graft in his arm years ago, and the patient was consulted to this vascular surgeon to have an abdominal dialysis catheter placed. It's called a peritoneal dialysis catheter, or otherwise known as a PD catheter for short. Switching from traditional hemodialysis to peritoneal dialysis seemed enticing to the patient who had been going to a dialysis center three times per week for years. As peritoneal dialysis is done at home during the night while the patient sleeps in his own bed and seemed just a lot more enticing to him. This particular vascular surgeon places a lot of peritoneal dialysis catheters in the abdomen and it's truly a simple procedure. So when the patient presented to that vascular surgeon to discuss the peritoneal dialysis catheter, the surgeon noticed a small umbilical hernia, a belly button bulge no larger than the tip of one's finger. Of course, it would have been incredibly easy for that vascular surgeon to have repaired that umbilical hernia. It's one of the simplest surgical procedures performed by a general surgeon, and this vascular surgeon uh, was trained in general surgery for five years prior to starting her two-year vascular fellowship. She undoubtedly has performed many of these umbilical hernia repairs numerous times. But the vascular surgeon did not fix this tiny hernia, but instead referred the patient to a general surgeon to address the problem prior to the vascular surgeon performing the peritoneal dialysis catheter. Where it should have taken one consultation and one surgeon to perform the two simplest of surgical procedures, it now took two consultants, two surgeons, two trips, two surgeries, and two follow-up visits. Such a waste. Okay. Then there's another example. There's an elderly man who sees a cardiologist two times a year for his atrial fibrillation, otherwise known as AFib. And that's a chronic condition where one of the small chambers of the heart rapidly vibrates out of sync with the rhythmic beat of the main portion of the heart. The patient has had chronic AFib for many years and has been taking the blood thinner Coumadin for about a decade, but had been switched to one of the newer novel anticoagulants, which doesn't require weekly blood monitoring. These drugs are very convenient because the patient simply takes a pill a day and his blood is thin. No testing is needed and no extra visits to the doctor's office are required. However, it's a real problem when patients bleed while they're on these drugs. If someone has a bleeding ulcer, for example, while taking one of these new novel anticoagulants, the bleeding often does not stop. It doesn't stop because there's no reliably available reversal agent for these new novelty drugs. Whereas any doctor could reverse Coumadin with vitamin K and plasma infusions, this does not reverse the effects of these new agents. The pharmaceutical companies have finally created a reversal drug, an antidote of sorts, but studies show that it's not entirely effective and it costs about $40,000 for a single dose. 
Thus, it's so prohibitively expensive that most hospitals don't stock the reversal agent and the hospital pharmacies that have it don't like to release it. So back to the patient. He has been taking one of these newer novel anticoagulants for over a year now, and his daughter tells the doctors that she's getting worried about her aging, frail father and asks the cardiologist if this new drug is safe. The cardiologist discusses the study, which pooled thousands of patients and concluded that the drug is safe. But the daughter expresses additional concerns. Her father is having balance issues, and she often catches her dad as he is falling. But the cardiologist isn't interested in his balance issues, as that's a problem for a neurologist to address. So he dismisses the patient, only to have him get wobbly on the way out to the car, where he falls and smacks his head. The patient is now bleeding from his scalp and is losing consciousness. Paramedics are called and the patient is brought to the emergency room where a CT scan of the brain reveals a large hematoma. That hospital does not have the reversal agent and the bleeding continues. A neurosurgeon is called, but he is reticent to operate, knowing that the bleeding will not stop. However, he does so in hoping to save this elderly man's life. But he does not. The patient expires. He dies because the cardiologist had tunnel vision, seeing only the beating heart and not the entire patient. An elderly, frail man who is likely to fall should not be on an anticoagulant which has no reliably available reversal agent. That's just foolish. But the cardiologist who had been prescribing the drug seemingly was not interested in the entire patient, but rather the patient's atrial fibrillation. And finally, there's the example of the lady who was sent to the general surgery clinic to treat an underarm abscess, which had been growing for over three weeks. This patient is 36 years old, and she is the mother of five-year-old quadruplets, so most of her day is spent running around and tending to her kids. Three weeks prior, she nicked her armpit with a razor, and shortly thereafter, she developed a painful lump just deep to the skin. She visited her primary care physician and was diagnosed with a golf ball-sized abscess. Now, the treatment of any abscess centers on draining the abscess, and every single physician who went to medical school spent at least several months learning the basics of surgery, during which it's ingrained into students that abscesses require drainage. Medical students are taught how to do this in family practice, and internal medicine residents are also taught how to do this during their first year of internship during their residency training years. Non-surgeons have been draining abscesses for decades, generations, in fact, for hundreds of years. But for whatever reason, family doctors and internal medicine physicians these days don't seem to want or know how to perform this incredibly simple but necessary procedure. Anyway, this patient does not get her abscess drained by her PCP, but instead is prescribed oral antibiotics. Of course, the abscess does not get better, but in fact, it actually gets worse. For days, the patient calls her doctor's office telling her that she's getting worse. She's having fevers, chills, and is now unable to fully use her arm. Finally, after about five days of this, the PCP advises the patient to go directly to an immediate care center, where she gets seen by a nurse practitioner, who describes the abscess as now being about twice as large as when it was seen by the primary care doctor. The nurse practitioner is also not comfortable draining an abscess, and the internal medicine doctor at the immediate care center, who is collaborating with the APN, suggests that it would be best to refer the patient to a surgeon. So the abscess does not get drained, but she does get a different prescription for a new set of antibiotics, and she gets a shot in the thigh. Three days later, this poor woman walks into the general surgery clinic, unable to use her arm, as the pain is exquisite and intolerable. The abscess is now even larger, and within a few seconds, the surgeon diagnoses an abscess, then anesthetizes the skin with some lidocaine, makes a small incision with a scalpel, and completely drains the abscess. The whole process took less than 10 minutes, and the patient immediately felt relief. 
relief which she could have felt weeks prior, only if the others had not relinquished their abilities to perform simple, basic office procedures. So why does this bother me, and why should this bother others? I can boil it down into two categories. Number one, subspecialization and super-subspecialization leads to greater fragmentation of healthcare, decreased coordination of care, and greater frustration and dissatisfaction. And number two, there are so many communities all over this country which need physicians and surgeons but can't find the right ones who can manage a wide variety of healthcare issues. I believe that the examples I've already given make my case in support of point number one, that extensive specialization leads to greater fragmentation of care, decreased coordination of care, and increased patient frustration. But what about point number two? For those who live in and around a major metropolitan area, there's very little worry about having access to a hospital or a healthcare system if needed. Most physicians live and work near a major city or community, and thus the ratio of physicians to patients is usually more than satisfactory. But for all of those out there who live far enough away from the metro and who clearly identify as living in a small town or a rural community, they have much greater healthcare access issues. For starters, there aren't enough hospitals. One in six Americans live more than 30 miles away from any hospital. And there are some areas within the continental United States where the closest hospital is more than 100 miles away. 30 million Americans don't live within one hour of a hospital that can care for trauma patients. And death from accidental injury is 50% more likely if it occurs in one of these communities. One quarter of all Americans rely on critical access hospitals for their healthcare needs. A critical access hospital is defined as a hospital with 25 or fewer beds, is located greater than 35 miles from any other hospital, and have at least some sort of emergency room and is staffed by at least one physician and one nurse. When you think about it, that's pretty shocking. To think that 25% of Americans rely on what I just described is somewhat hard to fathom, yet it's a reality. But to make matters worse, rural and remote areas without hospitals are also without physicians. For example, in Massachusetts, where there are almost 450 physicians per every 100,000 citizens, in the state of Wyoming, there are less than 200 physicians for every 100,000 citizens. That's less than half. There are countless areas in Idaho, Nevada, Utah, Wyoming, as well as Arkansas, Mississippi, and Alabama, and others where the number of physicians serving a community are simply put, not enough. And in most states, even in those with plenty of physicians overall, there are regions where communities just need more doctors. Imagine if you lived in one of these rural areas across America, and you're one of those 25% of all citizens who rely on one of these small critical access hospitals for your health care. And let's say that you were on the board of directors or a member of a community action committee in charge of making recommendations as to what type of doctors you were hoping to recruit to keep your small hospital and, uh, afloat and your small community healthy. Would you seek out doctors who could do more or would you seek out doctors who were super specialized but could do less? I think that the answer is pretty obvious. And thus, what I propose is that the expectation in medical schools and in residency programs um, across America should be to create more specialists who think and practice more like generalists and to create more generalists who think and practice more like specialists. So what do I mean by all this? What I'm saying is that when primary care physicians are trained to become family physicians, internal medicine doctors, or pediatricians, that they should spend plenty of time on specialty service rotations, such as general surgery, obstetrics, cardiology, and so on, and truly soak in all of the knowledge they can so as to think at least on some level as the specialists do and to do the most basic of procedures that specialists do. 
Countless patients don't need to be referred to a specialist, but that's only the case if the generalist has had an adequate education. This is exactly how things used to be, and America needs doctors to get back into that place in time. And specialists need to think and act like generalists. It's simply unacceptable and unforgivable, in my opinion, for a surgeon who likely graduated in the upper echelon of his or her medical school class to no longer know how to control high blood pressure or how to manage all the basic medical conditions we all handled as interns. It's shocking and embarrassing to me to witness the degree of consulting that takes place in a hospital. Everyone consults everyone, either because they don't know how to manage so many basic conditions or they don't feel like managing so many basic conditions. Either way, it's shameful and embarrassing. So going back to my scenario of the board member looking for new physicians, it certainly would be in the community's best interest to have a surgeon who did a whole lot of different types of surgery and could manage basic medical problems as well, and to have a general physician who could manage a plethora of different medical conditions and do some basic office procedures as well. Thus, these are the doctors who are the most valuable commodity, and the general physician would even have greater value if that doctor could manage OB patients, but I'll get to that in a bit. So I'm going to take my usual break right here. And for those of you who've already listened to me in past podcasts, know that I always try to go off on some sort of a tangent and talk about something unrelated to my main topic, but always positive. And I always try to, you know, highlight something that, that discusses the good of healthcare in America. So today's tangent topic is called damage control surgery. Damage control surgery. What, what the heck is that? What am I talking about? Well, it's something that those of us who practice trauma surgery sometimes need to do to save a life. And because of damage control surgery, many lives have been saved. Allow me to elaborate. During the Vietnam War and wars before that, and in fact, in trauma center operating rooms all throughout the nation, surgeons have been performing complex operations on patients who presented to an ER with extensive life-threatening traumatic injuries. Sometimes these injuries were so severe that multiple organs were damaged, extensive amounts of blood had already been lost even before hitting the doors of the ER, and the patient's condition was relatively grave from the very beginning. The surgeon's role was to fix the damage, and the culture for many decades was to fix everything and to fix it as perfectly as possible, regardless of how long it took. But having certain multiply injured patients in the main OR for many hours with abdominal or chest cavities wide open often led to the death spiral. Badly injured patients lose their ability to auto-regulate their body temperature, and they get cold. Cold patients then lose their ability to form clot, and wounds internal and external, which have already bled now more and more, are uncontrolled, and even raw surfaces ooze blood at an uncontrollable rate. And then there's the final problem, and when that kicks in, it's a real end game. The body becomes acidic. When patients lose too much blood, there aren't enough red cells to carry oxygen to the organs, and thus these oxygen-deprived tissue cells generate lactic acid in order to survive. But lactic acid lowers the body pH, and this further prevents the body's ability to form clot. Patients bleed more, and thus the term death spiral ensues. Once this is all in motion, it's nearly impossible to reverse the course of events and what we surgeons then call the lethal triad of hypothermia, coagulopathy, and acidosis unfortunately rears its ugly head and carries with it a nearly 100% mortality. However, wars teach us a lot, and trauma surgeons who work in cities have had enough trauma to be considered a war zone of sorts, and they've learned new tricks which keep patients alive. And in the mid-late 1990s, trauma surgeons started performing damage control surgery. Yet it was largely unaccepted and certainly not widely practiced throughout the U.S. or the rest of the world for that matter. 
Damage control surgery is an abbreviated form of trauma surgery, during which the surgeon only performs the surgical maneuvers necessary to save the patient's life, but not definitively repair anything. The two critical intraoperative maneuvers include control hemorrhage and control bowel contamination. Thus, a trauma surgeon might take a severely injured patient with, say, multiple gunshot wounds to the abdomen, to the OR, open the abdomen with the scalpel, and see a massive pool of blood. In decades past, the trauma surgeon would repair every hole, every vessel, every segment of bowel, repair the liver, and every other organ as necessary. But by the time that surgeon was ready to close the abdomen, the patient was often nearly dead or would die within hours thereafter. But using damage control techniques, that trauma surgeon might pack off different areas of the abdomen using the pressure of surgical sponges to compress blood vessels and stop the bleeding. The trauma surgeon then would be able to quickly identify areas of torn or perforated intestine and either staple off, tie off, or quickly sew off the areas that were damaged. Sometimes areas of intestine were quickly resected or cut out, but they would be left as such, not reconnected. And once the trauma surgeon felt that the packed-off belly was no longer bleeding and that the, that the wounded areas of intestine were no longer leaking bowel contents into the abdomen, the surgeon would cease operating and leave the belly open, leave packs in that abdomen, and cover the skin, basically, with only a temporary dressing. The then still critically ill but alive patient would be sent to the intensive care unit where the evolving hypothermia, coagulopathy, and acidosis would be aggressively corrected via active warming techniques, transfusion of clot-forming blood products, and the administration of bicarbonate and oxygen-carrying red blood cells. The resuscitation phase was a critical component of damage control surgery because only after the, after the body was again warm and no longer oozing would the surgeon then take the patient back to the operating room to remove those multiple packs and to hook up the disconnected bowel segments and then to close the abdomen. Damage control surgery worked, but it didn't really get accepted until we went to war in 2001 following the terror attacks on September 11th. Military trauma surgeon colleagues of mine began using damage control surgical techniques in Afghanistan, and military men with absolutely devastating injuries, who most certainly should have succumbed, were now surviving as a result of damage control surgery. I had already been a believer in damage control surgery even before my first combat deployment in 2004, and I've performed damage control surgery in both Afghanistan and in Iraq subsequently, and I've performed plenty of damage control surgery in the Chicagoland area in civilian trauma centers. You see, damage control surgery yielded such good survival results during the recent wars that it became the standard of care in civilian trauma centers all across the U.S., and frankly, it spread all over the world. Lives which would have been lost are now being saved because of damage control surgery. And that is something very good about healthcare in America. Okay, so let's get back on topic. I want to share with you the earliest years of my career as a surgeon, okay? In 1998, I had completed my general surgery residency and being an active duty military officer, I was assigned to be one of the three general surgeons at Bain Jones Army Community Hospital in Fort Polk, Louisiana. I had no subspecialty or fellowship training at that time, and my two partners were as green as I was. One was also fresh out of his residency, and the other, the senior man, if you will, was two years out of residency. The physician staff at that hospital included four family physicians, three internal medicine doctors, two pediatricians, two obstetrician gynecologists, one orthopedic surgeon, one ear, nose, and throat doctor, one anesthesiologist, and several nurse anesthetists. There were no cardiologists, there were no pulmonologists, no gastroenterologists, no endocrinologists, no vascular surgeons, no thoracic surgeons, no plastic surgeons, and so on. 
You may be wondering who managed the patients who needed any one of those specialists not available at the hospital. The answer, simply put, was one of the other physicians. For example, my general surgeon partners and I performed all of the abdominal surgery, all of the chest and lung surgery, all of the neck and thyroid surgery, and we even managed some of the plastic surgery and some of the vascular surgery. We had no pediatric surgeon, so when one of the many newborn babies presented with pyloric stenosis, which is an obstruction of the area where the stomach empties, it was my partners and I who operated on these newborns or usually two-week-old babies, and our outcomes were excellent. We did the surgeries identical to how a specialist would have done the surgery, mostly because we were trained to operate on one- and two-week-olds, and we had developed a comfort level and a skill set allowing us to do the job well. As I mentioned, there were no gastroenterologists at our hospital. So who did all the endoscopy? Who performed the upper and lower scope studies? Well, it was us, the general surgeons. We were trained to do them as residents, and we did them very well as young staff surgeons. Family physicians were highly valuable. They managed the adult soldiers and their spouses, they managed the aging retirees, and they managed their children. Even more valuable, they also managed the pregnant women and they delivered their babies. If a pregnant woman needed a cesarean section, there was always an obstetrician on call to make that happen. And the internal medicine doctors were also of great importance. We needed them for all of their knowledge and to manage the complex medical problems many of the family members and retirees brought to that hospital. Our hospital always had a few patients in the ICU, and the internists managed the medical patients, and the surgeons managed the surgical patients. Of course, we all helped each other if needed. There were no intensivists, but we had all been trained and had accrued the experience needed to care for critically ill patients when needed. Now, I recognize that many physicians and surgeons these days could not do what was expected of us prior to the new millennium, but there are rural tract training programs out there preparing physicians and surgeons to do more of what was expected of physicians and surgeons in decades past. In my opinion, all surgical and medical training programs should try to improve the breadth and the depth of the residents' experiences, expect more of them, and prepare them to do so much more. I said that I would talk about the OB issue as well, and that's where I'm going right now. America needs more doctors with broader skills, especially in rural areas, and perhaps in greatest need are doctors who manage a woman's pregnancy and can deliver babies. There is a severe shortage of OB gynecologists in this country, and in fact, one half of all U.S. counties have not even one OB gynecologist. The OB shortage affects big cities and small communities alike, with cities like Las Vegas, Salt Lake City, Miami, Los Angeles, and Detroit claiming crisis status, as there simply are not enough doctors to care for pregnant women. But rural areas are in particular jeopardy. 50% of women in rural areas have to travel more than 30 miles to find an OB gynecologist, and 10% of rural women have to travel 100 miles to find one. Family physicians provide the lion's share of obstetrical care to pregnant patients and women in rural areas. And certified nurse midwives also take care of a lot of these pregnant patients. Whereas midwives provide just 10% of all obstetrical care across the U.S. as a whole, they provide 30% of the OB in rural areas. And whereas millennials are having fewer babies, there are still plenty of them getting pregnant and needing someone to take care of them in every community, town, and city across America. OBGYN used to be a well-represented specialty, and a lot of medical students who wanted to practice a hybrid of sorts between medicine and surgery went into this specialty. But a number of factors has discouraged doctors from pursuing a career in obstetrics, a significant one being the overly egregious and burdensome threat of a malpractice lawsuit should a baby have a poor outcome following delivery. 
And as unfortunate as it is when a, when a newborn has one of the many less than optimal outcomes, outcomes which have led to huge pressures to deliver babies by cesarean section rather than vaginally, virtually nothing has changed over the past 40 years or so with respect to maternal or infant outcomes despite all of the advanced monitoring and high rates of surgical delivery. It was widely thought that babies born with cerebral palsy and other related issues suffered injury as a result of low oxygen levels in the baby just prior to birth. A very well-known politician and former personal injury lawyer who represented babies born with these presumed to be hypoxia-related birth injuries raked in multiple millions of dollars in lawsuit winnings via theatrical performances in the courtroom mimicking babies begging and fighting to have a C-section. The result of these lawsuits was an exponential rise in C-sections. However, there was no improvement in baby outcomes. A recent study published in the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, in which over a million babies were studied, concluded that the risk of cerebral palsy is not decreasing by performing a cesarean section. And despite the fact that over the past 40 years, the rate of cesarean section went from 5% to a whopping 33%, the incidence of cerebral palsy has remained stable at around 2%. And all of the other birth-related injuries presumed to be less likely by performing a timely C-section have also remained stable. Thus, where cesarean sections are sometimes necessary, they are not as necessary as the public has been led to believe. And much of the pressures to perform cesarean sections can be placed squarely on the shoulders of the trial lawyers. So we know that there is a critical shortage of OB gynecologists and that family physicians provide most of the obstetrical services in rural and remote areas, often with general surgeon backup to perform C-sections when needed. So what might America do to mitigate the current crisis? For starters, there really needs to be less pressure placed on doctors to perform C-sections. The decision to perform a C-section should be based on clinical evidence dictating when to deliver a baby vaginally and when to pull the trigger and perform a C-section. Fear of a lawsuit, should a baby be born with an adverse outcome, should be influenced by the studies showing that C-sections don't really change most outcomes. Lawyers shouldn't be dictating how to practice medicine, and certainly they shouldn't be fabricating why babies are born with cerebral palsy. Second, we need to get more of our family physicians to practice obstetrics. Many, if not most, family medicine residencies train their physicians how to manage pregnant patients and how to care for patients in labor and how to deliver their babies. However, once they complete their residency training, most family doctors do not practice obstetrics. This is a real shame because they spend only three years in total training following medical school, and a fair amount of that training is spent caring for pregnant women and delivering babies. If family practice residents have absolutely no intention of caring for pregnant women, then perhaps they should spend more time learning something that they will want to manage and they, will, they do need to know. But for those who want to practice cradle-to-grave medicine, we should support them in every manner possible and incentivize them financially to practice full-spectrum healthcare in these rural communities. And finally, there cannot be resistance from the OBGYN community to dissuade family doctors from practicing obstetrics. There is a shortage. There is, in fact, a critical shortage of doctors who manage pregnant women, and we need to collectively support the generalists who are willing to take on the specialists' roles when they're willing and able to do so. I want to circle back on this concept of uh, on the concept of specialists being more like generalists and not throwing away so much previous knowledge, training, and skill under the auspices of being a super specialized doctor. Now, I have a very good friend and colleague. His name is Paul, who was trained in general surgery well prior to the 80-hour work week restrictions were implemented. 
Following his surgical residency, he worked for a year doing lung and vascular surgery, and then he entered a cardiothoracic fellowship training program where he trained to become a heart surgeon. For years, he practiced cardiac surgery, mostly coronary bypasses and valve replacements, but he kept up his general medical and surgical fund of knowledge and his skill set, which he acquired during medical school and during his general surgery years while working for his father-in-law on the side. His father-in-law had attended medical school in the Czech Republic, and he trained to be a surgeon there as well. He was a well-respected physician and surgeon in his homeland, but after several years, he left and came to America to escape the turmoil back home. Once in the U.S., he was given credit for his medical school training, but his surgical residency was not recognized. If he wanted to practice as a full-fledged surgeon, he would need to perform a five-year surgical residency in the U.S., However, he knew that he could perform a family practice residency and get done in just three years, and so that's what he did. He obtained a medical license, and he began practicing family medicine. But he was an exceptionally skilled family doctor. After all, he was a fully trained surgeon, and he had practiced surgery for many years back home prior to immigrating. Because family doctors performed a variety of basic surgeries back then, my friend's father-in-law had a very fulfilling career truly practicing every aspect of family medicine imaginable. My friend saw his father-in-law's success, and when asked to help out with the practice, my cardiac surgeon friend jumped right in. He used all of the education, training, and skills acquired in his previous years to practice part-time family medicine on the side, managing patients in the office as well in the hospital. Years passed, and my colleague's once flourishing cardiac surgery practice started to dwindle. Whereas the default procedure to treat patients with coronary artery disease was the coronary artery bypass, something Paul performed innumerable times, Minimally invasive techniques performed by the cardiologists started to erode into the surgeon's domain. More and more patients received balloon angioplasty and coronary stenting, and thus fewer patients needed actual heart surgery. Where several heart surgeons in the region simply retired, my friend still had a lot to offer the world. So one day, he and a few of his partners extended their cardiac surgery practice to include general surgery. They attended a few refresher courses to read up on some of their old notes, and they just refreshed their memory on a lot of different things, but having never given up the past, the transition back into general surgery and medicine, frankly, was actually quite easy. So in my friend's case, he was now practicing some cardiac surgery, some general surgery, and some family medicine. He was the ultimate physician, and he was extremely successful. He eventually stopped practicing cardiac surgery altogether, but he developed a trauma surgery program, a breast surgery program, a robotic surgery program, and a bariatric surgery program. He was truly the quintessential surgeon. A few years back, he joined my group, and he continues to do great things. In my opinion, he is the example of what today's doctors should aspire to. And although he became a specialist, he thought and practiced like a generalist, and as a result became one of the very best physicians I have ever known. So to conclude today's topic of whether healthcare today needs more generalists or specialists, I unequivocally believe that we need more generalists. However, we need the type of generalists who practiced medicine and surgery in decades past. We need our generalists to think and act like specialists. My son-in-law's grandfather is a retired family physician. I didn't know that when I first met him, and when I found out that he was a doctor, I asked what his area of, of practice was, and he very confidently informed me that he specialized in the skin and all the contents below it. I'd never heard it put that way before, but what he was clearly saying to me was that he took care of the whole patient. He used all of his education, all of his training, and all of his skills to manage all of the patients. I believe that we need more primary physicians like him. I believe that we need more general surgeons like my friend Paul. 
and I believe that all who specialize in anything need to continue to incorporate all that they've learned up to that point in some way into their practice. Perhaps everyone should be a family physician on the side, and perhaps every family physician should scrub into surgery on occasion, as was routinely done as recently as a decade ago. But regardless, what we need are more well-rounded physicians who treat the whole of the patient. Do we need subspecialists? And do we need super subspecialists? Absolutely, yes, we do. But truthfully, we need far fewer of them than we're cranking out and that we think we do. Thus, I say that we need to be generating more generalists versus more specialists, and I vote for the generalists as being the more valuable of the two. So, that concludes my time with you today. I hope that you all at least got something out of today's podcast, and hopefully you'll choose to listen to my next subject on whatever it is that I decided to talk about at the time on healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm Dr. James Cole, and I thank you for listening. This podcast and the rest of the podcasts in this series reflect my opinions and do not necessarily represent the positions of any other institution or entity. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Marie Hathaway for the artwork and for producing this podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed the guitar music because that is me playing and taking my own creative liberties. And we hope that you will again join us for our next episode of Healthcare in America, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly.